This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. Here we are in the first heaven, the sphere of the moon. We get an important revelation here about how spirits appear to Dante as he ascends through paradise. The spirits that Dante has just encountered in Canto Three actually share a place in the utmost territory, the Empyrean, where they reside with God, housed alike with the souls of Mary, Jesus, and a host of saints and other virtuous people. They delight in the flame that is the pleasure of the Holy Ghost, as Dante puts it. But the spirits in the lunar sphere appear there as a means of communicating to Dante through visible signs how they're ranked within the heavens. Beatrice likens this to the way humans tend to imagine God and his angels as having human faces and hands and feet, that is, as being anthropomorphic, because the human form makes it easier for us to conceive of something that otherwise exceeds our imagination. In short, such signs meet us where we're at, so we can better comprehend them, better see what they're offering us or communicating to us. Such signs are suited to your mind, Beatrice says, since from the senses only can it apprehend what then becomes fit for the intellect. And this is why the Bible condescends to human powers, assigning feet and hands to God, but meaning something else instead. And Gabriel and Michael, both archangels, and the angel who healed the eyes of Tobit, the archangel Raphael, are portrayed by Holy Church with human faces. When I'm reading this, I'm reminded of the images of God we tend to draw as children. God's often portrayed as an older male figure, bearded, sitting up in the clouds. I'm reminded how revolutionary it was to later read a text like Cloud of Unknowing and to be encouraged beyond a God dressed up in human features. What would it mean to imagine God as a darkness or as a voice over the waters, as immaterial or as blinding light, or better yet, as a quality beyond metaphor, higher than what we can imagine? What might it mean then to share an image and likeness with God? Could it be an internal image and likeness, a way of being, something deep inside us, a texture of being, or something as simple as compassion, kindness, love? A key question troubled over in this canto is the positioning of two figures in particular, Picarda and Constance, and these apparent lowest rungs of paradise. These two women had taken religious vows, but were forced to leave their convents, in Picarda's case, violently abducted by her brother Corso, and then forced into politically advantageous marriages. The Dante Pilgrim wonders why the violence of others would cause these women to occupy a lower place in paradise, why their own merit would be tarnished. The explanation offered through Beatrice strikes a dissonant note. These women are accused of being at fault for not having resisted strongly enough, not having exercised absolute will and thereby commanding their own return to the cloisters from which they were violently taken. This is not a moment that has aged well. It's a harsh pronouncement deeply at odds with our modern understanding of how to treat victims of violence. It's also a good reminder that we can coordinate our moral compasses in contrast to what we read, just as thoughtfully and actively as we might otherwise follow good examples. My ears are tuned to Picarda's voice in the previous canto saying, then men more used to malice than to good took me violently from my sweet cloister. God knows what after that my life became. Dante was actually related to Picarda through his wife, Gemma Donati, and Dante has just encountered Picarda's brother, Ferese, his childhood friend, among the gluttonous in Purgatorio. Picarda's other brother, Corso, 
is one of those, quote, men more used to malice than good who abducted Bacarda. He was the leader of the Black Gelfs, the faction opposing Dante's own White Gelfs, in Florence. According to Ferrazzi, Corso is destined for hell, the valley where there is no pardon. Ferrazzi prophecies his brother's death and damnation in Purgatorio. Go with this, he says. I can see the one who is most to be blamed dragged at the tail of a beast toward that valley where there is no pardon. The beast goes faster at every step, gathering speed all the time, and finally smashing and leaving his body hideously mangled. After seizing control of Florence, and after exiling more than 600 white Guelphs, including Dante himself, Corso was eventually overthrown, and he fled Florence. During this escape, he was apparently captured by Catalan mercenaries and likely died in the way Ferese describes here, having been dragged by his own horse. Here are three siblings then, each closely connected to Dante, strung evenly between the three afterlives, with Picarda at the summit, Ferese in purgatory, and Corso destined for hell. This family functions as a microcosm of the Commedia experience, three siblings spanning the entirety of the Christian afterlife. Dante's encounter with Picarda in paradise activates echoes of what has happened below, indeed what's happening. And we see the entirety of the afterlife thrown through the prison of a single family. But the line segment that connects Ferese with Picarda also illuminates a slightly less visible element of the mechanics of Dante's afterlife. W.S. Merwin is right to point out the Purgatorio is the most human-feeling canticle of the three, not only because it takes place on the same earth that we inhabit, but also because of the delicate balance between suffering and hope. Hope as it is experienced nowhere else in the poem, says Merwin, for there is none in hell and paradise is fulfillment itself. That's true, but it's in this early part of Paradiso that we see that all is not entirely alike in Dante's heaven. It's not so much an issue of hope anymore. Picarda's position is fixed, her bliss attained, but here for the first time, variations of bliss are mapped out. The notion that some souls sense the eternal spirit more and some less. They experience this dolce vita, this sweet or gentle life or afterlife, differentemente, differently. So while on the one hand, the appearance of these two women in the sphere of the moon is a fiction or similitude that condescends to Dante's need for signs, on the other hand, there's truth to the fiction. They're absorbed into the interstellar bliss of the beyond, but they also reflect a position of liminality, a difference. Now, Canto Four is a pivotal canto in the sense that it's pivoting to Beatrice's ringing endorsement of free will in Canto Five. The Dante Pilgrim completes this canto by asking his guide whether one can marshal one's free will to atone for past misdeeds, a question that strikes at the heart of an ongoing medieval philosophical debate over the role of free will versus predestination. The question literally sets Beatrice ablaze with excitement. Her ability to spontaneously glow at blinding levels is a theme in this canticle, divine inspiration and physical dazzlement being one. Beatrice looked at me with eyes so full of sparks of love, eyes so divine that my own force of sight was overcome. I almost lost my senses. We break off with that blinding, and as we turn the page, we find it to be a momentary pause as Beatrice charges ahead with her spirited response. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 
100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Tory Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.